I want to thank my patrons who are the people that keep this podcast going. If you enjoy it, please show some love to them. First and foremost, my brother George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. If you are interested in the bullshit that the global economy has become, there's no better place to sort your head out than Rebel Capitalist Pro. It's access to George Gammon, Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh. They have their head wrapped around the global central bank shit show. Uh, just as much as anybody I've met. You've heard George on the podcast. I think he's brilliant. Uh, I get a lot of useful information out of their forums. I was actually just listening to George's podcast with Luke Groman today, which I found to be fantastic from last Wednesday. I highly recommend. Uh, But his Rebel Capitalist Pro platform is well worth it. QTR podcast listeners uh, get a discount by using the link in my profile description. You can catch me on the forums over there as well. I spend a lot of time over there. Get live Q&A, access to portfolios, and all kinds of inside information from, not inside information, <laughs> but inside baseball from brilliant people like Lynn, Chris, and George over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. This podcast also brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver providers at JM Bullion. I love these guys. It is the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. Right now, you can reach out to Laura at JM Bullion, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com via email for some personalized service just for being a QTR podcast listener. Uh, Laura is there. She replaces the wonderful Kathy who helps so many of my listeners get their gold and silver bullion. Kathy has moved up and moved on, and so Laura has taken her place. JM Bullion has a decade of experience. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They ship my orders, at least. They turn them around same day, which I find very impressive, and get them in the mail. And they always have a wonderful selection of inventory. So want to send some love over to my friends at JM Bullion. If you're looking for gold and silver, check out the link in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by that household name, Wall Street Jesus and Sang Lucci, my two brothers that run the steam room, which is... What I think is the best piece of software to track money coming into the options market and get a leg up on tape reading, get a leg up on where the big money is coming into the market, and that many times can be very lucrative uh, and also can help telegraph where equities are going to go. So a lot of times you'll notice big money coming into a name and then bang, the next day all of a sudden by fucking coincidence, there's some great news about it. I don't want to say everybody on Wall Street are a bunch of scumbags, but they are. And so if you want to watch where that big money is going in case scumbags are out there playing the game unfairly and they are leading on to some uh, positive or negative developments in the future, a great way to do it is just by watching the options market. And Wall Street Jesus Steam Room is a beautiful way to do that. 14 days free trial. You click through the link in my podcast description. They will give you a 14-day free trial. At least I think that's what Charlie said to me. Here it is. Hold on. Uh, Where the fuck is it? 30-day trial. Fuck me. How about that? You can apply for your free 30-day trial at wallstreetjesus.com. Wall Street, that's W-A-L-L-S-T, Jesus.com, wallstreetjesus.com. Check it out. 30 days, free trial. Bang, bang, boom. What else do you need to know? This podcast also brought to you by my dear friend Pete Hedges over at The Trader's Path, which is one of my favorite day trading communities. If you're looking for an honest place with great scans, good watch lists, you're looking for a place to have some discourse, surround yourself with other traders, ask questions of people, 
The Trader's Path is a great place to do that. The link to that is in my podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by Corvus Gold, my friends at Traders for a Cause, my favorite charity. Ken R. Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, he's going to be on the podcast soon. Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, some of my oldest patrons like Max Mulvihill and Kyle Thomas, Chris Bede, thank you guys so much. And some of my newest patrons, Adam Rossi, David Barber, Tyler's in the house, Tom Smalley, and Charlie Yu. John Grovom, thank you guys so much for your love and support. And also, a couple of people that have been with me for a while, like RLT, I still see you, my friend. Thank you. My friend Chris, Seavils1 at Yahoo. What's up, my brother? I really appreciate you. Randy and Sean Telvid, Mark Gillen, thank you guys so much for your continued support. This podcast has a three-drink minimum, and nothing that is about to come out of my mouth is life advice, investment advice. I'm not a RIA. I'm not a CFA. I'm not a CAIA. I hold no licenses. I hold no registrations. Do your research elsewhere. This is just basically cheaper than paying a therapist, and that's why I'm here. You should not be taking anything I have to say seriously. With that being said, the world does need a fucking reality check. And it's unfortunate, but at some point, it's going to happen. The thing about reality checks is when they're overdue, when we're overdue for some comeuppance, it's going to happen. And there's nothing that central banks can do to stop it. There's nothing that social justice warriors can do to stop it. There's nothing that the government, both sides of the aisle, can do to stop it. Though I do find it is the people that lean left that feel entitled to a certain sense of comfort in their lives. And that is a wonderful platform to run on. Because essentially what you're doing is you're promising citizens a very non-volatile life, right? People are naturally resistant to change. And naturally, people are going to gravitate toward the political candidates that make it seem as though they are going to make life the easiest for them. Whether that is saying, we'll put your kids through college for free. Whether it's saying, we're going to cancel your debt whether it's saying that we need to curb the free speech of others to protect you from being offended, whether that is saying we're going to give you universal basic income and we're just going to give you money just for nothing. By the way, money we don't have. The government doesn't have. But the problem is that whether you're dealing with that type of nonsense thinking or you're dealing with capital markets that have really run amok, at some point, natural laws start to take over. And in the case of capital markets, I mean, those natural laws are natural economic laws. They're natural free market laws. They have their way, right? The the bubble always winds up bursting. It's just a question of how big it gets before it bursts. There was a great tweet the other day It was something like phrases economists said before the Great Depression. And a lot of them were this, you know, the country may never see a recession again. Or central banks have ostensibly removed the idea of recessions from the country's future. There was all this thinking that we had somehow figured out a way to not only game the economy, but game economic laws for the purpose of making the country feel more comfortable, for the purpose of trying to create a more prosperous, less volatile 
marketplace where everybody has this rising quality of life together and we don't have to fall victim to depressions or recessions, which is ridiculous because they are a natural product of any market. And so no matter what variables you try to twist and turn and manipulate to make things better in the short term, all you're doing is prolonging the misery. And you can take this and you can apply it to normal life in this country as well, too. Right now, we are constantly trying to make everybody comfortable. And I've talked about this a lot of times on this podcast. We are in the midst of enduring a pandemic. And in order to try and deal with that, we're trying to, we are overthinking the problem again, and we're doing so much that it is becoming counterintuitive and counterproductive. What prompted me to want to do this podcast today and what prompted me to get on this reality check line of thinking was I was coming in from a run and I was just looking at the news headlines that had crossed the wire while I was out running. And one of them was Boris Johnson had come out and said, well, we're not sure if we're going to be able to do the Easter holiday this year because of the virus. And I'm walking back to my fucking house thinking, what year is this? Because didn't we just do this in 2020? Didn't we just say we weren't sure whether or not we'd be able to have the Easter holiday because of the virus? So what has changed over the course of those 12 months? Because by that line of thinking, and this is really a case of, you know, skate to where the puck is going, not where the puck is. What has happened over the last 12 months? Well, we've learned a lot more about the virus. We know that it's not the insane death sentence that we thought it could have been a year ago. We have the entire scientific community that has come together. We have no less than, I think, four or five vaccines now with several more in the process of being approved. We have, I think, something like 12% of the United States already has their first vaccine shot. So we are making serious progress, lest we forget that this virus is, in using CDC numbers, let's say three times as deadly as the flu. What do we do for the flu? We do nothing. Literally nothing. There's no regulations. There's no fucking testing. There's nothing. We do nothing for the flu. You can go to school. You can go to work. You can go to a stadium. You can go to an airport. You can get on a plane. You can do anything you want with the flu, and people do. And the flu just kind of makes its way around. And that's what happens. Why don't we deal with it? A, because it's not that big of a deal. It's only a huge deal to people who are compromised significantly. And I don't want to downplay that for people, but I have a, you know, a terrible piece of information for everybody listening and that's that everybody dies i'm sorry you know nobody we're not we're not fighting the war to live to be 120 or 200 years old you know you you get older your fucking hair falls out your immune system falls apart and you die and it happens to everybody i hate to say that and i i know that some people don't want to hear it because it's not a comfortable thing to make peace with, but you have to make peace with it. Otherwise, you're going to be living scared shitless your entire life and in an even further alternate reality than we've already created for ourselves here. So we don't deal with the flu, A, because of that, but B, because it doesn't make sense to try to test for it, 
test everybody for it, deal with it. You know, we deal with slight outbreaks, outbreaks of maybe more uh, deadly strains we pay attention to, H1N1. Okay, well, what'd we do with that? Well, fucking precisely nothing. We did nothing for that, okay? Something like 50 million people wound up getting that, and that was it. And by the way, when H1N1 happened, nobody was really concerned. I mean, it was a headline, but it wasn't a global emergency like COVID is. It's not a huge deal. We weren't, I mean, we have overshot the mark on response to this virus, I think, so much. So after that Johnson headline of, hey, we don't know if we can have Easter this year, the other headline was, well, Johnson is concerned because virus cases are still high. It's like, yeah, because the fucking thing is everywhere. Again, I don't know who needs to hear this, and I'm not trying to trivialize the effect that this virus has had on many families, including my own. But we have to be realists at some point. If this thing has been running amok for 14 months, and that's being generous and using the figures that China has given us, it's pretty much everywhere at this point. So it's not ridiculous to say that there's a high amount of cases. You know, what happens with herd immunity is people become naturally immune and people get vaccinated. And between those two things, we achieve a level of immunity where the virus isn't rampant. And that is a process. And that process happens over time. And the same thing happens with the flu every year. But every year, people get the flu. Every year, people re-up their flu shots, which ostensibly protect them from newer strains of the flu. They go get their flu shots. Some people get the flu. Other people don't. And life goes on. And some people die from it. And most people live from it. And that's it. And we've just kind of come to accept that. That is a societal norm. Somebody says, oh shit, he's got the flu. He's staying home today. Okay, hope you get better. Life goes on. Now on to the supermarket to buy peanut butter or whatever I was doing beforehand. And I'm not saying that we need to go full flu and just pretend like COVID doesn't exist. Because really, we, for the most part, we pretend that the flu doesn't exist. 99.9% of the time, we pretend the flu doesn't exist. Unless you have the flu, you're not really thinking about the flu or concerned about the flu. You get maybe your flu shot every year. You think about it for that five seconds. I should get this. Maybe I won't get the flu this year. Bing, bang, boom. That's it. And then you go about your life. One order of fried chicken, please. And a shot of fucking Jägermeister or whatever you were doing at the at the time. <laughs> you know, you think about it for half a second and that's it. And then you move on. So am I saying that we should do that? Should we completely write off COVID, pretend it doesn't exist? No. But should we do three times the minuscule amount of thinking about the flu that we do with COVID? Probably. So what's the rational response? What's three times the almost nothing that we do for the flu. Well, it's three times almost nothing. You know, instead of not thinking about it 99% of the time, we don't think about it 97% of the time. Not right now, which is basing every decision that we make on our daily life, including Boris Johnson trying to figure out whether or not he should have a bagel or an English muffin for breakfast by looking at the vitamin D content in both of them and figuring out which one's going to protect him the most from COVID. That is spending 100% of your time thinking about COVID. And psychologically, we have to back off a little bit. Not just because it is an extraordinary waste of time and resources, but also because it is killing people 
from the mental stress. I mean, we continue to see drug overdoses, alcohol overdoses, um, alcohol-related deaths, probably a better way to say that, mental illness, psychological illness, um, and most people that I talk to feel it one way or the other. I mean, I know personally when I took the first month off, when we were still trying to wrap our heads around how dangerous this thing was and what the big deal was, I know personally, you know, that if I'm not active on a daily basis or six days a week, if I'm not going for a jog or if I'm not going to jujitsu or if I'm not out and moving about, if I can't work up a sweat, man, I fall into a, a nasty cycle of just, you know, sitting at home and just feeling like shit and then I start eating like shit and then, you know, it's just triggers and enabling all your bad habits. And I know the same is true for a lot of people because I've talked to a lot of people about it. And so our mental fitness, and by the way, too, there's a lot of people out there that haven't discovered that your mental health oftentimes can be the leading indicator for your physical health. I mean, if you feel like shit mentally, and especially if you're doing things like boozing too much or eating bad food, those things manifest themselves in physical symptoms. And a lot of COVID and a lot of being able to fight COVID depends on your body and your immune system being healthy to begin with. And a great way to do that is to get into a positive cycle of eating right, watching your diet, exercising, laying off the booze, you know, seven days a week and cutting it back to two days a week or whatever. All those good habits and the great things that they do for your physical health become assets when you are eventually faced with the virus. So... By overshooting the mark and by saying, well, we still need to lock down. And, and, and I think people are just tired of it, too. You know, I think even people that were very alarmed about the virus, too. I mean, I have a good friend of mine. He moved out of the city when the news about the virus hit. And a lot of that was on my prompting and my urging because I was telling him, we don't really know the truth. China definitely isn't telling us the truth. Let's pray to God that they're lying about the number of infections and not the infection fatality rate, which it looks like was the case. Although I do personally believe that they may be trying to cover up the origin of the virus as well. But even he has moved back into the city and said, you know, hey, I think it's time to kind of move on with life. My personal physician, my doctor that I see, that I've seen for years, I talked to him last April, that is almost a year ago to the day, and I remember him saying, I think it's time we should open back up. And that was last April. And here we are talking about whether or not we can even have Easter this year. It's just like, look, the natural law of things is people want to get together. They need to be social. They need to be out. They need to be with their families. They need to be part of a community. They can't feel like they are locked down and constrained all the time. And so the further that they want to try to push this into the summer, lest we forget the fact that, you know, the heat is supposed to be a tailwind, right? Cases are already dropping now coming out of the winter. If you look at the, the global data on, uh, you know, people in hospitals and uh, deaths and cases here coming out of February, it looks like the worst of the winter is already over. We've got the vaccines in hand. We know more about the virus today than we ever have. What are we questioning Easter for? It's time to skate to where the puck is going. And 
allow people to breathe and give business owners a fucking break. Give them a break because all people want to do is go back to reality and go back to real life. You know, I got a haircut yesterday and I went in and joked with my hairdresser. I asked her, hey, you know, can you do my beard for me today too? And she said, no, we're not there yet. And I said, oh, all right. You know, she said, can't do anything under the mask. I said, okay, okay. you know. Lucky I have a barber also too in in, uh, in the city that I know skirts the rules who will remain nameless that every once in a while I get the good beard trim from. But I was at a different barber today, or yesterday rather. And, uh, and she said to me, you know, not only do people not come in because of the virus and because of the lockdown restrictions... But when people come in, they get less done. You know, they're more inclined to just come in for a haircut and not get coloring done. Or they're more inclined to just come in for a haircut and not get the beard trim done. And so that affects these businesses in a negative way too. And it's the same for restaurants, right? You may be more inclined to go back to a restaurant now, but you're not going to sit there all night like you normally would, maybe watching the game and having a drink because there's nobody there to socialize with. Or because, the, you know, you got all these goofy rules now. At 11 o'clock, we got to shut down. That was the other thing, too. Yesterday, Cuomo said, I'm going to extend the restaurant closing time to 11 p.m. It's like, get the fuck over yourself. Get, get over yourself. Honestly. You know, let these fucking places reopen. And let them open till 2 o'clock. Nobody is forcing the American public to go suck down Bud Lights until 2 a.m. anywhere if they don't want to. We understand the risk. We understand the problem. We've got our heads wrapped around it. Some of us are getting vaccinated. The rest of us will be getting vaccinated. The ones that don't get vaccinated understand the risks and are fine with going about their daily life. Get over yourself. 11 p.m. Like Andrew Cuomo is, you know, the the hand of God is reaching down himself and saying, you know, 11 p.m. Here we go. I go back to that example a lot. I went to the casino, I don't know, like three, four months ago, and they would serve you, they would serve you a Diet Coke and they would serve you a cranberry juice and they would serve you a water and they would serve you a coffee, but they wouldn't serve you a, a vodka cranberry. So what, what's what's the difference, you know? Same cups, same places, same bars, same waitresses, same straws, same group of people that you're around. But what's the deal? I guess, you know, if you have something to drink, it might uh, it might inhibit your your propensity to obey, to follow the rules. Maybe that's it. it was fucking weird too. I walked in and just walked right through the you know, with my mask on, but walked in, walked right past. There was a little podium set up. No security guard there. Security guard chased me down. Sir, we got to take your temperature. I'm like, look at this place. It's full of fat people playing slot machines on motorized carts and, you know, degenerates and gamblers and bleh. I mean, it's not even Vegas. It's Ben Salem, you know? It's parks. <laughs> you got the... You got the decay of Northwest Philadelphia in this casino. You're worried about what my temperature is? It's just so stupid. You got an entire building full of people that are gambling away their social security and won't be able to make rent, which they'll probably turn around and blame on COVID. And you're worrying about taking people's temperatures. We just got our priorities so out of whack when it comes to that, that not unlike the market itself, 
natural laws are going to eventually create a reality check for us. Whether that reality check comes as people just getting pissed and saying to the government, hey, by the way, these regulations are over, just so you know. Don't forget who's got the power, motherfucker. It's the people. There's 350 million of us, and there's, you know, 2,000 of you guys in Washington, D.C. Don't don't forget who really runs the show here. I don't know if it's going to be that, or if it's going to be something that comes along that makes coronavirus look like nothing. You ever get in trouble as a kid and you start crying and your parents say to you, I'll give you something to cry about, which means you haven't even seen anything yet. I haven't even smacked you and you're crying. You want something to cry about? I'll give you something to cry about. (laughs) And that could be the type of reality check we could be in for also. You know? Right now, I just saw yesterday there was an outbreak of Ebola somewhere in Africa, a new strain of Ebola. You want a fucking problem? You want to walk around with latex gloves on all the time and a Tyvek suit with goggles and really lock yourself in the house and duct tape your vent shut and live off a four-pound bag of rice for six months? Ebola is a problem. If we had an Ebola outbreak, that would be very concerning. That would put some things in perspective for us. But what I think is going to put things in perspective for us is going to be, unfortunately a major economic crisis. And you know know what I noticed too that I just wanted to bring up? Right when I was reading those Boris Johnson headlines, I was on Instagram and I was going to put up a photograph. And when you put up a photograph on Instagram and you you don't want to just put it up normally, but you want to put it up with a filter on it, the first filter that you select, the, the first one that it gives you the option of doing, what does it do? It takes all the color out of the picture, right? It smooths the edges of the photo. It takes all the color out of the photo, makes you look, you know, ostensibly better. I mean, I don't think it makes you look better because I think, you know, looking real, looking like a normal person is looking your best with the good and the bad. It's like, hey, my fucking tooth is crooked. You know, I got my nose is crooked. Who gives a fuck? We all got these things. You should embrace those things. You should love those things about one another. But anyways, the first filter, all it does is it takes away all the color, all the personality, all the sharp edges, all the unique things that make you who you are. And I thought, wow, that's such an interesting microcosm for really where we are. You know, Everybody wants to be comfortable. Everybody wants to look better than they look. Everybody wants the edges to be smoothed out of their lives. But the reality is that that only plays for so long. Because the longer you spend fooling yourself into thinking you're comfortable or thinking you're good looking, right? Say you go on a dating app and you put all these photos of yourself with all these filters on them. You take a photo of yourself out somewhere and fat buck tooth with acne and balding, right? <laughs> or as I call it my profile picture. And you apply all these filters to it and you put little sparkles next to your face and you put bunny rabbit ears on your head and all this stupid shit that people do. And you put all those things up as your bumble profile. Another 
hemorrhoid on the ass of the capital markets now. But you put them all in your Bumble profile. And then you go and meet somebody in person on a date. And they get a look at you in like bright light. Maybe you go to the beach, right? And the sun's out. It's 90 degrees and sunny in Newport Beach, California. And you show up. Well, what is that person going to see in real life versus what did they see on the app? Right? That is a reality check. Now, maybe if they're a nice person, they'll go through with the date and they'll say, it was nice to meet you. Maybe I got to move on, but it wasn't quite what I expected. Or if they are a person that is living firmly in reality, they might just show up and not be able to contain themselves when they see you and just be like, goo! Good God! I mean, hello, nice to meet you. Oh, Jesus, I have to go. Uh, I just got a call. But we just met. Yeah, I know. And you didn't look at your phone. Yeah, I know, but I could feel it vibrating in my pocket. Big emergency. Gotta run. (laughs) The fact is, you can't avoid reality. It's gonna hit at some point. You know? You can't stand in front of somebody you're dating and look at them through the lens of your phone because... It's got a filter on it that makes them look like how you want them to look. You got to accept the reality of the situation. And the same is with coronavirus, right? We have to understand what is the reality of the situation. The reality is we have a virus that's three times more deadly than the flu. And we're acting as though we are walking hand in hand into the seventh circle of hell together. That's what we're doing. So the reaction doesn't quite fit the problem, in my opinion, at least. Now, an offshoot of that, and no other place is it more evident that we are living in an alternate dimension than it is in the world of economics. Well, what does that mean? It means that we are arrogant enough Not only to think like we did in the 20s, right, before the Depression. Not only were we arrogant enough to think that we had all the solutions to every future financial problem on Earth. And that central banking and Keynesianism was going to just lead us down a path of prosperity and nothing else. You know, how did that work out, by the way? Clang, we woke up the next morning and it was the Great Depression. Have a nice decade. Thank you. (laughs) But now we kind of <clears throat> we kind of feel the same way now. And the weird thing about quantitative easing and what central banks are doing is that the amount of easing that they have to do going forward always winds up accelerating every time that we do it. So you may have heard some fun facts like we printed more money last year than we did in the 40 years prior to it combined or something. That's interesting. That's what I mean. You know, if you look at the national debt, I think on like five-year intervals, it goes from, you know, two trillion to four trillion, four trillion to eight trillion, eight trillion to twenty-three trillion. I mean, there's huge leaps. And so as the money supply expands and all of these variables expand at accelerating rates, we redline further and further and the risk of there being some enormous clap back from the actions we've taken rise, 
right? It's like, how bad do you want to skew your dating profile picture, right? Like, I'm a 40-year-old balding guy with tattoos. Okay, like, if I put up a photograph of a 38-year-old guy that's only slightly balding but has tattoos, people will be probably disappointed when they see me. If I put up a photograph of fucking Justin Bieber, who's like 23, rich with a full head of hair, and, you know, a successful and well-known musical artist, and somebody shows up with me on a date, they're going to be very surprised and annoyed. And it will, again, be a time where I wind up paying the check and sitting by myself. (laughs) Remember High Fidelity? When he does that, she storms out of the bar. He's like, check. Well, I'll have the check here. You know what's interesting about that? I don't even think he gets his drink. When he meets uh, he meets Laura at the bar and he sits down and he motions to the waiter. And I don't think the waiter ever even brings over a beer. And then they have the conversation. I think about whether or not she had had sex with Ian yet. And she's like, is that why you brought me here? And he's like, yeah, of course. And then she gets up and she storms off. And I think he asked for the check, but I don't think he's ordered a drink there yet. So I have to go back and watch that. But I wind up in that kind of situation, right? Why? Because I deceived you significantly. The delta between reality and what I'm trying to make appear reality gets wider. And that's what's going on with the economy now. The delta between reality and the perception of reality is arguably, I mean, I think it's the widest it's ever been in my lifetime. I can't remember a point where what's going on with the economy and If you want to hear more on this, I mean, you can listen to my last Our Bullshit Economy podcast because I go into the effects of this and exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm not going to spend time on it now. But if you look at the delta between the reality and where we are perceptively, um, you know, the perception is that everything's fine. The central banks have everything in order and we're in the midst of this big giant recession and we need kind of unlimited stimulus to make our way out of it. And the underlying situation is that the country is being brutalized. Small businesses can't open. We have regulations stifling everybody's ability to be productive and to generate cash for themselves. We have tens of millions of people out of work or underemployed. We have a severe economic recession happening underneath of a stock market bubble. So that delta is extremely wide right now. And not unlike the dating profile picture, the wider that delta gets, the worse the reaction is going to be. The worse the bubble burst is going to be when it happens. And it will happen. You know, it will happen. I mean, there are a lot of shops and analysts and investment banks on the street that are out there raising their price targets for this year, next year on the capital markets, whatever. And all that is, is just playing into the idea that what the Fed is doing will continue to work and there's not going to be any real world consequences. And that may very well be the case. Maybe in the next five years, 10 years, 25 years, our lifetimes, a century, two centuries, who knows? I don't really know how long this charade can last but that doesn't mean that it's not a charade and it doesn't mean that the natural economic laws aren't going to wind up whipping the gate quickly in the other direction at some point because it will 
So what we see now is investment banks putting out notes and central bankers talking about current policy as though they understand it and as though we know what the consequences are going to be and you know we know where this thing's going to go and hey we have tools and options in case anything happens and the answer really is that we don't because raising interest rates which would be the key way to fight inflation would cripple the country because of the amount of debt that we have outstanding and so that would actually just exacerbate a crisis so we, and then the Fed comes out and says, oh, well, we're going we're gonna to stress test to make sure that banks can undergo a 55% uh, drop in equities to make sure that they can survive. It's like, look, if we have a 55% drop in equities from right now, we'll be back to where we were last March. It's not that big of a stretch, right? And by the way, if we drop 55% again, it's probably safe to say we're going to drop more than 55%. So why don't we just go the full shebang and go to 80% or 85%? Maybe they don't want to scare the straights by saying, this is what we're testing for. But, you know, where would a 55% drawdown bring us? It would bring us back to where we were in March. You know, the real question should be, who's going to stress test the Fed? What did the Fed do in March? They came in and they backed all the banks and basically backed the entire economy by saying we're going to provide unlimited liquidity. So even though the banks, what they should be doing is testing to see how the banks would have reacted if there was a real problem and we saw a real depression, say there was a real serious virus where 80% of all businesses had to close down permanently. The loan loss provisions would be off the chart. There would be defaults everywhere. It would be a real, serious, enormous economic depression. That's what they should stress test against if they're going to go ahead and stress test the banks. Not a 55% fall in equities. But again, this question comes back to who is going to stress test the Fed? Who's going to make sure that the Fed doesn't overdo it with their bailouts? Otherwise, what prevents the Fed from monetizing everything? Really? What prevents the Fed from monetizing everything? Because we're getting closer and closer to Congress calling for, I don't know, a $75 trillion relief package that wipes away student debt, gives everybody a $50,000 check, bails out all of the states, bails out all the pension funds, and, you know, is going to be the key to unlocking national prosperity. All we got to do is tax $75 trillion in debt onto our running tab and we can set the country up for success and there's never been a better time because rates are so low right (laughs) who's gonna stress test that idea you can draw a straight line from what we're doing now in basically the democrats thinking that we can and the republicans too in all fairness thinking we can spend unlimited amounts of money and we can take on unlimited debt without consequences right this is yellen saying the you know it's time to go big on stimulus it's like yeah who's gonna fucking pay for that how do we go big we're broke we're 27 trillion dollars in debt and we don't manufacture anything in this country like go big we're not in a position to go big that's like going out taking out a credit card with a ten thousand dollar limit running it up to ninety five hundred dollars and then deciding on the one purchase that's going to put you over your limit might as well make it a $15,000 Kia 
that puts you over your limit by $14,900. Because if you're going to go over the limit, you might as well go big. (laughs) It's like, there's no point. It's such a non sequitur. It's such an illogical, you know, way of thinking. It's such a fallacy. It's such moral hazard. It's insane. And you could draw a straight line between the way that we're thinking now and the idea that, oh, there is some magic number that we're going to be able to print that's going to get the country into a prosperous position but isn't going to cripple us financially. And that's just not the case. And and now, I mean, we're saying that in a situation where all the central banks seem to be in agreement with one another globally in this prisoner's dilemma together. But imagine if one of the central banks decides to turn tail and say, we're not playing the fiat game anymore. We're not playing the Keynesian game anymore. Doesn't really make sense to us. And by the way, the rest of you guys should check yourselves. Something like that happens. You want to talk about shockwaves going through the global monetary system. And those shockwaves will be exacerbated by how much further we decide to take this bubble mania than we've already taken it. So back to my original point. Who's going to stress test the Fed? Who's going to make sure the dollar doesn't crumble away and it doesn't fall out from underneath the country, from underneath the central bank? Because that's the risk that we're all talking about. And by the way, all these banks that are out acknowledging, well, you know, we're going to up our price target on the S&P next year to 4400 because we see a strong recovery. They all understand what's going on. You're seeing more and more normal financial people, like guys like Ray Dalio, you know, who put out his, this is how the economic machine works, right? Here you go. We've got the central banks. They had liquidity, and then we have booms, and we have busts, and the debt cycle, and this and that. And it was like this video that kind of, explained Keynesianism to people as if it was normal. Even guys like him are coming out and saying, well, there's a lot of weird shit going on here. You know, we, we the bond market is starting to send some weird signals now, and we're getting into dangerous territory with money printing and the debt. I mean, how are we going to address the debt? And by the way, we don't make anything here. As Peter Schiff would say, the only thing we export is dollars. <laughs> and it's true. We print money here to buy things from other countries. It's just, you know, we're like the friend that mooches off of you. You can think about the country just like you can think about yourself. A person that's leading a good life has responsibility for themselves. They've got money in the bank. They don't have debt. They have some assets and they go to work. They generate productivity. And if they're not doing it for themselves at a business, they're generating productivity for somebody else at a cost where the employer, it makes sense for them to employ the person. So you're out. If you're a writer, you're generating articles. If you are a coal miner, you're generating industrial coal production. If you are working at a gas station, you are helping ring up things at the register and you're helping pump gas. If you are a tennis instructor, you are providing a service of tennis lessons to people that want to get better at tennis. So the people out there that are good, normal, everyday, responsible people that want to lead a you know virtuous and prosperous life, they try to keep their personal balance sheet in order, they try to stay productive, and they hope that that productivity will then pay off for them in the long term by allowing them to have a family, have a house, retire comfortably, do the things that they want to do. That's all just a microcosm for the country. Except if you were to look at our country as a person, 
Well, what would you see? You would see $27 million, trillion dollars in debt, okay? So they're not in a good position financially. Their personal balance sheet is not good. I mean, if you were $27 trillion in debt, you would probably just declare bankruptcy, you know? <laughs> and the country doesn't produce anything. What we do is we buy everything we need from another country that does produce everything. That's like you need cereal to eat for breakfast. So what do you do? You can go out and you can earn the money to buy your own cereal or you can try to keep mooching off of a friend. You keep staying at their apartment on their couch and not paying rent. At some point, the friend is going to get fed up, tell you to get the fuck out of the house and go get a job yourself. And that's what China is going to say to the U.S. at some point. You know what? You want these party decorations or whatever the fuck they're manufacturing over there? Some kind of bullshit plastic crap that we don't even need? Anything in the uh, the Oriental Trading Catalog, those type of things? Oh, what is it? It's a kazoo. Okay, great. Throw it in the fucking landfill with the rest of the shit, I guess. But at some point, they're going to say, Hey, you want tiny miniature kazoos for your party? You guys fucking make them. We don't want the dollars anymore. Because they're not worth the fucking paper that they're printed on. And so at some point, the idea of stress testing the Fed to ensure the integrity of the dollar has to be a question that we ask ourselves. But if we continue to stay focused on the idea of making everybody comfortable and appealing to emotion instead of appealing to reality, then it's going to lead us down this bad economic path that has a bunch of very negative consequences. You know, the, <clears throat> the negative consequence of universal basic income is it disincentivizes people to work. So you can expect less production from that, not more production. And if you believe that production is what ultimately raises your quality of life, well, then you can make a strong argument that universal basic income doesn't lift people out of poverty. It just really raises the bar for everybody to get over because of the amount of inflationary stress you are creating by printing all this money and because you are disincentivizing productivity, which means we need to import more shit. It means less jobs. When we appeal to things that sound great when we're trying to create monetary policy, like save the environment. Oh, oh. Sounds good, doesn't it? I like it. I love the environment. I'm outside every day. I try to respect the environment. I love animals. I try to respect animals. I try to eat vegetarian. I try to do my part as a human being. I try to be somewhat socially conscious. But if we dictate our entire country's economic policy off of those items that just tug on people's heartstrings and appeal to their emotions in an effort to make people feel more virtuous and in an effort to make people feel more comfortable, we are going to shy away from the basic economic laws that can really, truly, once again, make the country prosperous and actually raise our quality of life. It is through production and through savings that our quality of life will go up, not through spending and not through socialism. You know, anything that the government can do, by the way, whether it's socializing medicine or socializing whatever, fucking air traffic control, 
Anything the government can do, the private sector can do it more efficiently and can do it better. And that's just a fact. I mean, you look at government-issued anything versus privately-issued anything, and you will notice a... You know, the government is like this vortex of efficiency. It's like where efficiency goes to die. And I love the government, you know? I love it. My parents both worked for the government. You know, I... I love the U.S. Postal Service. The idea that I can put a stamp on a letter and get it to fucking California for like 48 cents or something ridiculous is insane. Possibly it's why they're going bankrupt, but it's just nuts. So a lot of good people that work for government, but the fact is not a lot of great managers, not a lot of great people incentivized because there's no profit motive for working for the government. There's an unlimited trough of money being printed by the Fed that tells people at the top to just do whatever and that there doesn't need to be any efficiency and there doesn't need to be any return on invested capital because we just have an unlimited trough of money that you can come and pull from until all of a sudden we wake up and the money is worthless at some point. And I hate to bring that up as like one of the risks about Bitcoin again out of nowhere, but the fact is... You know, the argument for gold as money is because gold is not only tangible, but it has uses and it has demand. And it has has had demand as a commodity for thousands of years. And Bitcoin and the U.S. dollar really don't have any commodity purposes. And so when you listen to guys like Peter Schiff make the argument for gold over the dollar or over Bitcoin, that's one of the points that he makes, which is... You know, at at some point, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but at some point you could wake up tomorrow and the price of Bitcoin could have fallen significantly because there's no real underlying commodity use for it. And a lot of Bitcoin, I still think, is speculation for people hoping that it'll rise in price in order to convert it eventually back to dollars, which you could argue are, again, equally as worthless. (laughs) The question is, how long can people shuffle this stuff that doesn't really have any underlying tangible value to it back and forth? And with Bitcoin, or even you know, with the US dollar, we're talking in the case of the Postal Service, or we're talking in the case of the Fed printing it, how much can we print before people decide psychologically it's not worth anything? I mean civilly, what is the unrest that could occur that could really take the government's hand of being able to enforce the dollar with the military, with the gun, which is essentially how we enforce the dollar as currency, right? It's by rule of law. Like we threaten to lock people up if they don't pay their taxes in dollars. How long can that go on? And Bitcoin is kind of the same deal, right? It doesn't really have, I know Bitcoin's a protocol, but It can be somewhat relatively easily duplicated and there's no limit to the amount of these cryptos and we still don't know whether or not there's going to be regulation. I wrote last week, you know, I think the too big to fail case is on the table because all of these major institutions are adopting it. And as that happens with Bitcoin, I think it kind of forces the government's hand to say, all right, well, we have to acknowledge its existence and we have to kind of play ball with it now. We can't just shut it down. We can't just turn the switch off at this point. Um, but at the end of the day, 
you know, you've still got this asset that doesn't really provide any service that is digital. So again, hate to say it, and I know the Bitcoin people hate it when I bring this up, but if you don't have electricity, you don't have Bitcoin. It's that simple. If you can't access it, you don't have it. So like in the case of the Texas brownouts that we're seeing this weekend, you have your life savings in Bitcoin, but you don't have any power. Well, you can't access it. If you got a million dollars in a safe somewhere in cash, well, you can get to that and you can use that to buy products or services. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just bringing up examples. The point is that we have to think through a lot of this stuff. These cryptos, a lot of them are Potemkin villages of sorts in the sense that people are handing things off to one another, but we're not really handing anything off to one another. And we're still pricing all this shit in dollars. You know, people get stoked when Dogecoin doubles. Why do they get stoked? Well, they get stoked so they can cash out the Dogecoin they had and convert it back to dollars, right? So, I mean, Dogecoin isn't going to be currency going forward. Just like, again, people don't price things in Bitcoin because you can't, because it's so volatile that when you price something in Bitcoin, you don't really know whether or not the next day you're going to be taking a 10% haircut on it or you're going to be getting 10% more than you would have gotten the day prior. If you charge one Bitcoin for something, say I'm selling a Camaro and I value the Camaro at about $49,000 and Bitcoin's at $49,000 and I say, put it up in ad. All right, one Bitcoin for this Camaro. And the next day, Bitcoin drops 30% and goes down to $30,000. And the guy goes, hey, here's your Bitcoin. Give me the Camaro. I just sold that Camaro for $30,000 and not $49,000. And so that that's a big problem. And again, I think... As I said on Twitter, the too-big-to-fail case for Bitcoin is kind of on the table now with all of these investment bank participants in it. But I think it stacked on top of a capital market that is also somewhat of a Potemkin village is a big problem. You have speculation on top of speculation on top of speculation. You have the Federal Reserve that's speculating with the currency that is backed by nothing. We are producing it en masse to appease the virtuousness and the emotional uh, feel-good strings in people's hearts to address whatever problem du jour we're looking at, racism, climate change, whatever people are railing against that particular day in Congress, without paying attention to the fundamental economic laws that the free market eventually will... Uh, muscle into the equation, whether we like it or not. We're printing this money en masse, and we're using that money to speculate on overvalued stock assets, which are companies that are valued at significantly higher valuations than any time historically. You know, 35 times earnings, 40 times earnings. You're paying this huge premium on companies. The companies that are out there and producing products or services, but many of them aren't even profitable. Many of them aren't even generating cash. And then on top of those valuations, you have an entire other unregulated asset class that's been around for 10 years that nobody knows where it's going to wind up or where it's going to go. It could be the next big thing or it could be nothing at all. And we have this immense speculation in that asset class coming over top of the speculation 
that's in the capital markets, right? That's layered on top of the speculation by the central banks, which is essentially that they have unlimited psychological credibility with the citizens of the country and of the world, which of course, human nature and natural laws tell you that that's just not the truth. So you have bubble on top of bubble on top of bubble right now. And when we should be paying attention to how much speculation layered on top of speculation we're really engaging in here. And we should be really focused intensely on the underlying signals of the economy, which are that, hey, things really aren't as good as they look. And so what is this widening delta between reality and perception? What negative consequences does that in and of itself has when we should be focusing on those things? We're not. We're focused on all these other man-made non-events that are not as urgent as the shit show we're about to see globally, economically, and in the U.S. That should really be priority one. I mean, if you're a patriot and you love the country and you want people in the country to have a better quality of life and you want the country to be strong on a global scale, that should be your focus, focusing on those things. But instead, when you get preoccupied, and I'm not saying that looking at COVID a year ago and and being stringent about what we did was the wrong call because it wasn't. At the time, we didn't know much. And so we had to take drastic measures. But now that we know things, COVID just becomes, you know, slightly more one of these preoccupations like climate change, you know, like social justice. And by the way, All of these things, they are issues and there are things that need to be addressed. I'm not saying they're not problems, but I'm just saying when we make those the priority and then we start basing our political decisions and our economic decisions on those things, instead of allowing the market and productivity to help us solve those problems, you know, having a vibrant economy will will help us. So, you know, if the public is concerned with climate change, businesses will be incentivized to address climate change because they're going to want to win the favor of the consumer. And so if there's two burger shops and one of them gets their shit from some farm that's, you know, whatever, fucking powered by solar panels, and one of them gets them from a, you know, a factory somewhere, and you're an environmentally conscious consumer, you're going to go to the one that gets their shit from the farm with the solar panels. So businesses will be incentivized to do that. The scientific community is incentivized to solve COVID, even if they don't make money off of it. If Pfizer is the company that saves the day, you will hold Pfizer in this wonderful light for the next 100 years, and you will buy from Pfizer when you're given the option to buy from either Pfizer or you know GSK or whatever. And businesses are, are and will be incentivized to show customers that they're doing things to protect them when it comes to COVID. That's why when you go to places now, they say, all right, wear a mask. By the way, we spray down all our shopping carts before you come in. By the way, there's hand sanitizer in every aisle now. People say, oh, cool. They're looking out for us. They understand we still need to get our fucking groceries, but they're concerned about COVID too. And if you're concerned about COVID, you're going to go to the grocer that has all of those precautions set up and not the grocer that is ignoring it and vice versa. If you don't give a shit that much about COVID, then you'll go to the other grocer that maybe has lower prices, but doesn't have all that stuff 
because they didn't have to shell out all the money to, you know, COVID-proof the store or whatever. So we have to get back to letting the market solve some of these problems instead of trying to game the market and tailor the market in a way that we, you know, the political class and the central banks think can best solve those problems. Because all that's going to do is just increase unnatural distortions in the economy. And really, it's going to increase unnatural distortions civilly amongst the country and amongst people. And we're already seeing that with the wealth gap widening. And so when those things occur, then we start to see things like the GameStop fiasco. Then we start to see things like the protests and the riots over the summer and the capital insurrection. Those things happen as a result of us distorting the socioeconomic landscape because we think we're doing good when really, you know, we're like a dog that has just bitten its own tail and we're just kind of chasing ourselves around in circles at this point. So maybe step back, let the economy breathe, let some things figure themselves out, let the market address some of these problems because the more comfortable we try to make things for people, the more we enable their sense for entitlement, which unfortunately means the bigger the shock is going to be when reality eventually makes its way into these people's lives, whether it's economically or whether it's socially or in any way. Um, It's going to hurt that much more when they have to take the medicine. And the laws of nature and the laws of economics and the laws of, you know, just being a human being and the laws of the universe, they supersede everything. You know, Jerome Powell is not God. He's a guy on a planet where the history of everything we've ever known as human beings exists on this little fucking thing out there somewhere where like something much bigger is going on. We don't know what it is. We don't have a lot of proof. Scientists are trying to figure it out, but that's it. You know, at some point there is a set of laws that supersede everything that we do. And I think if we're not humble about that, we don't understand it, can't wrap our heads around it, and ideologically, if we don't consider that in the equation of you know what we do on our day-to-day and where our priorities are, it's, it's only going to lead us down a bad path. And it's only going to detract from our quality of life eventually. And, uh, and it's a very kind of soulless and scared way to go through life. And, uh, and I think that that, in turn, becomes a negative feedback loop. So I think... People mentally need to open their minds up a little bit more. They need to allow their brains and their souls to breathe a little bit. We need to allow the economy and the country to breathe a little bit at this point. And that would be a great way to stop the negative feedback loop of things that are going on and maybe start to affect some change that might might feel a bit uncomfortable in the short term, but I think long term will lead us to the most prosperity uh, for our nation. All right, and for the world. How about that shit? You like that? Happy President's Day, fuckers. I'm out of here. Peace.